and I have to often remember to say, what does this mean in your culture? Um, what what does this mean? Uh, and so that I have to say, oops, you know, don't forget, you are thinking like a Hmong person. Um, and so it, it's it's hard. And so I think we have to be humble and have the humility to say that we don't know much and and join that process with our client and allow them to also educate us too. Welcome to Wellness in Color on the Mental Health in Minnesota podcast produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Wellness in Color is a podcast series that explores perspectives on mental health to reshape the cultural language of mental illness. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. Subscribe to the podcast and listen on the NAMI Minnesota website or wherever you get your podcasts. This interview was conducted by Amy Wong and Mai Cheng, who are both volunteer members of the NAMI Minnesota Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board. And now here's your host, NAMI Minnesota staff member, Caroline Ludi. Welcome to Wellness in Color. Today's hosts are Amy Wong and Mai Cheng with guest, licensed clinical worker, Chu Tao. Chu talks to Wellness in Color about his Hmong heritage and clinical work in the mental health field. For 20 years, Chu has provided bilingual and bicultural mental health services to adolescents and adults and has experienced working with organizations in the areas of employee mental health, refugee issues, and Hmong culture. Understanding the complexity of Hmong lives and the issues affecting the Hmong families and community, Chu currently works with clients at his practice, Chu Tao Counseling Services, based in St. Paul, Minnesota. These efforts were supported by the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences of the National Institutes of Health, award number UL1TR002494. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, True. Welcome, Amy. And welcome, Mai. I'll let you guys take it from there. Thank you. Thank you. We would like to start off by asking you, can you tell us more about your background and how you came to be a therapist? Uh, I am a clinical social worker. Um, I've been in the field close to about 30 years. So I've been mostly been a frontline staff working as a therapist. Um, I have a few positions where I am the manager of a mental health program. And in my last position, I was uh, running a program that recruits and trains second-year MSW students to become licensed mental health professional. But pretty much in my career, I set out as a uh, bilingual mental health worker uh, in Rhode Island where the state provided money to a hospital to provide mental health program for refugees, Southeast Asian refugees, actually. And I found mental health to be interesting, so I went to school, and I've been working in the field since. From your trainings and experience, what stops cultural populations from seeking help in their mental health? Uh, there are some that I, I think that are generally true for everyone. Uh, those are aff- affordability, transportation, time, um, people who may need mental health but do not have babysittings. Uh, people may not have the knowledge to go get help or how the mental health systems are are um, organized. I think generally everyone have those. Uh, mostly people in the inner city, I think, have those. But I think from a cultural standpoint, um, I think most refugees and uh, particularly the more, I think, understanding of the broader mental health systems of services is a barrier. 
uh, again, like the other, any other people, transportation, certainly language, certainly affordability. But I think a key distinction about the Hmong is that I think Hmong view wellness much more physiologically and spiritually, and Hmong are not very psychologically mindedness. So I think it's a barrier for them to come to get help um, because health is de and wellness is defined more physiologically. Uh, if they are experiencing mental health condition, uh, they often say they are not well, but they don't see themselves as sick either. And so that then uh, prevented them from, um, or I think it affects the pr perspective of who do I get help from, when do I get help from. The other thing I think is that Hmong have a lot of traditional remedies to health. So they tend to explore that and exhaust that before they turn to Western medicine, uh, Western um, treatment systems. The other complication is I think that people always question about, particularly for psychotherapy, whether talking cure is really, uh, are we able to cure a sickness um, with talking? Um, we are certainly not shaman, we're certainly not herbalists where we have tangible or we have superpower. Uh, I often joke that when people come to my office, they see a 5 by 7 certificate from the Board of Minnesota Board of Social Work Licensing, so I don't have these magical altars. So uh, I certainly don't have um, significant uh, magical power. And then finally, I think in terms of therapy is that I think because culture and language uh, differences, I think we often don't realize how much the therapy process does not have the shared meaning uh, by both the therapist and the client. So I think these are often things that we overlook but has significant power in terms of the effectiveness of treatment and longevity of people's commitment to stay in treatment. So I think there's a number of issues that can be potential barriers to people like the Hmong to come and get mental health services. So you share about your um, professional background, but I would like to hear more about your personal background, um, like your experience. What led or inspired you to also become a therapist? Well, I came to America when I was 11. Uh, I'm the baby of uh, eight siblings. Um, growing up, um, I help a lot in terms of translating for my folks. I remember as a probably a sixth grader, used to take the bus and take dad to work and um, sit and translate for dad with the supervisor and then come back to go to school. So I think the the feel of helping people have been, I think, something that draws me into that. Um, and so when I was in Rhode Island, I actually, the family resettled in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, at the East Coast. Um, as I said, my ex first exposure to mental health was there was a program that was established by the state um, to provide mental health service for uh, the Southeast Asian refugees. So it was led by a psychiatric nurse. So um, because I speak a little bit loud, too, they hired me to work as the um, bilingual mental health worker to work with the Laotian community and the Hmong, and there was a Cambodian worker. And that really exposed me to... Um, the the mental health service and the the in, I was really intrigued by reading the some of the evaluation I want to know more and so that got me into 
I was actually enrolled as an engineer, uh, and I got accepted into engineering school, but I did not go to engineering school. I went, I was kind of floundering on the social, uh, sociology and liberal arts stuff, and then I got my hand into the mental health, and I found it fascinating about the mind and the body, and that's when I, that's what drew me into uh, mental health. So, Do you feel like it connected to you personally because you... Uh, also see mental health um, going on with your home life or your personal life? We don't have anyone in the family that has mental illness. There was a brother-in-law who is a brother-in-law of my uh, my older brother, who is also a social worker, too, that he has schizophrenia early on in his life when we came to Rhode Island. But, you know, without the training, uh, we don't have much understanding about what's really going on. Uh, when I think my first real exposure to mental health was when I worked in the uh, program that I was uh, hired as a bilingual worker and began to visit people in hospitals and uh, was consulted by people for more through the cultural side, not so much in the clinical side. And that got me really intrigued about mental health and the human body and mind. Yeah, so. How does your cultural and racial identify um, infuse with your clinical work with your clients? When I read that question, I think there are two parts to that. I think the cultural racial side allow me a context um, to understand when people come and present a situation. Um, I will be talking about a few scenarios here. And then I think the clinical side allowed me to see the science and develop the skills uh, to be effective in terms of helping them. So I think my role as a therapist has two sides, the arts and the science. And I think the art science is the, the cultural, the racial side that allows me to have a perspective that is, uh, I think it allows when you do therapy, um, you have to have engagement, and you have to have trust and rapport, and I think that allows me to have a meaningful engagement with my client with trust, and they feel like I can relate to them. So I think for me, the, the racial and cultural specific part are the, the art science where it allowed me the cultural context to process the content that, that are the clinical, the, 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 the wellness, the, 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 the disorder. So... Um, what I meant by that is that it allowed me to, for example, I would go into the community and I can see that someone, based on what they describe, in, in my mind as a professionally trained therapist, is that mm, this person may be experiencing schizophrenia or depression or anxiety. But when my, my Hmong colleague or my Hmong a family member who are not trained, they may think it's because the person is possessed or that person might be pungpli, which is like the soul, the loss of the soul. But for me, I have a template because of my training to kind of understand what's happening. Um, and so then on the flip side, there I get a lot of consultation from mainstream therapists to say, for example, I got a call from a therapist who said a woman who's um, had been in relationship difficulty with her husband she had been folding a straw figure and put in her uh, under her pillows, and the therapist found that the, the therapist was questioning whether she was 
having some delusion or whether she was uh, having some sort of hallucination, I say, absolutely not. Um, when Hmong people do that, then what they are doing is that the straw figure are protecting figure for her from dreams and all of those. And so I think uh, my cultural racial set allowed me perspective context that a person who's not of the same ethnic uh, background may not fully understand, they may pathologize that situation more than it needs to be. Um, I remember in my early, early days in, as a bilingual worker, we visit a family and this dad sits with me and this nurse, and we are going through the uh, process. And there, he's holding a baby, and the baby has a bottle next to him. And he pick up, he often picked the bottle up and suck on the nipple. And she would point to me and say, you see that? You see that? That's really weird. I say, why is it so weird for you? I mean, I don't see that as anything that's weird at all. I mean, that's just we call but no, right? I mean, just like... That's just something they they do without uh, realizing that you're reading more into that than it is. So so it allows me to see things that my fellow Hmong may not see because I have the training. And I can see that it's much more complicated, sophisticated than what they think it is or, or they're minimizing. Or I can also see that there are things that people may over-pathologize that it is not. Um, I just got a consultation a few weeks back. There's a Hmong woman who was seeing a therapist, and after her husband died, for Hmong, uh, a woman's social identity is attached to her husband. And so when the husband died, the family talked to her in ways uh, that she felt that they stopped loving her, and um, she felt very much abandoned, and when I listened to the story more, I said, mm, I'm not sure. I would ask because when you are not, when your husband passed away, if their relatives, particularly the men, if they talk to you too much, it may be perceived like they they're, uh, may have un- a bad intention. If they respect you too much, you may be feeling like you're abandoned, so I would get more deeper into that. So I think that's when we do... Um, have a racial and ethnic background, I think there are some advantage to us to see certain perspective. And so I think that's, that for, for me, it's been an imp- int- uh, important journey to try to help recruit, train, and support people from different ethnicity because I think that that's a perspective that you have to live in and you have to be part to fully appreciate some of that. Uh, it can also be a negative factor for us to see too much, and we we uh, overread in a certain way too. But I think that's what's the beauty of uh, uh, cultural diversity and racial diversity is to be able to see those perspectives and not over-pathologize, but also when people don't have the training, they minimize it, then you can push it for more services. Um, so, so I have been involved with relatives in town when... Uh, they're very delusional, they're not going, and they will call me to the house if they want us to do magical thing right away. And I say, no, this is not something we're going to solve with one meeting. This is something we need to get professional involved, and we need to be patient, and we need to support the family. And so I think the clinical side allowed me to understand the science and the skill and the racial diversity. Uh, cultural side allowed me to see certain perspective that Sometimes uh, people over-pathologize or people minimize it. Yeah. So. 
In many communities, um, I think especially Asian, there is that disconnect where the older generations may not know the correct terms or understand uh, mental health in the way that we do um, in, I guess, today in modern days. Um, and I think that a lot, a lot of that has to do with historical trauma. So how do you think that historical trauma impacts your client's mental health? You know, I don't, I don't think I see historical trauma in that perspective, though. Um, I think for me, universally, in the last 30 years, as I be, become more and more involved, I think universally, symptom, symptoms are very universal. Uh, I have worked with Haitian, I work with Dominican, Puerto Rican, Hmong, Somali, Cambodian, Karen, Kareni. I think universally, uh, symptoms are the same, no matter where you are from. If you are depressed, you have all the symptoms that everybody have. If you have post-traumatic stress, people have the same thing. What is different culturally is that the manifestation of that disorder is defined very culturally. Uh, instead, in the, in now we call schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, in the old days when we don't have schizophrenia, we call it, oh, you're possessed. Uh, for a moment, like more dangako, right? So something came inside, you possess. And so the defining of that disorder is has a very cultural base, but symptom-wise, I think it's universal. Um, so I think we have to be careful how we use these terms um, about historical trauma or trauma is that I think people experience the same in terms of symptom um, and how they define and how then they receive support from the families are very different. Uh, if you look at mental health compared to physical health, mental health is severely, uh, it severely impaired a person's function, but people, if you have a broken leg, if you have cancer, people do things for you, and when you are depressed that you are severely impaired, people may not have the same sense of empathy because we're not visible outside. And so I, I don't think it's because um, of historical trauma, but it's because of language precision. Uh, for example, when Hmong moved to America, there are a lot of vocabulary that we don't have. We're, in, we're not a scientific uh, culture where we have science. We live in the mountain. So when we look at computer, we don't have the soft part of computer, the brain, the hardware. We don't have those because language precision is you develop language based on what you need. Uh, and so there are certain words, certain terms that we do not have. Um, and so that I think it takes time for those of us who, who educate them. We need to be able to uh, take very complex concept and be able to make it in a way that people can understand. So when I do training and supervision with my students and my staff, uh, one of the challenges I always have is you learn very complex, very sophisticated world to sh so that when you're around your colleague, you look so sophisticated. But the question is, can you explain that in such a way that your client can engage with you and understand? For example, the word trauma. We talk so much about trauma, and trauma is often overused, but a lot of clinicians cannot explain trauma in a very simple term to their client. And so you have to find ways to explain so how do you explain trauma to the Karen or the Hmong who just come from the mountain? Um, when we build house, we build alarm system. And when the alarm goes off, 
it tells us to be careful because something's not normal. Well, when God built human or the, our creator built human, uh, we have fear. And fear is our alarm system. And when you are fearful, then your body goes off. And your heart stops pounding to get blood, to get ready to go. And then you are afraid because you don't have the medical training and you think something is completely wrong with your body, you're going to die, and it defeats into that. So if we can take very complicated and very complex concept and make it in a way that our client can take parts and find meanings in that process, then they will stay. Uh, I find that a lot of these young clinicians who are brilliant in school cannot explain this concept in ways that make sense to their client. And so they say the client are not, are very resistant and don't take part, but really it's the, the issue is really it's the clinician. And so it is important for us to make sure that what we do, what we say, we do know what we're talking about. Otherwise, it's a process that we get paid, but they don't get anything out of that process. And so it's important to, uh, to be clinically trained and to know what we say. What language, words, or phrases do your clients use to describe their mental health condition and wellness? Uh, for the moment, I lived in the East Coast for a very long time before I moved to Minnesota in 1995. So I have to relearn how to do diagnostic assessment because mental status assessment, as, as you know, uh, have many, many, many complicated words. And from a language precision standpoint, we don't have those. Um, if you look at Hmong, Hmong used the, the liver, uh, Lucia, which is the liver, right? as a center to describe emotions and personality traits and our action, right? So for Hmong, when you say Shia law, if the word Shia uh, is uh, uh, used before in an adjective, then it describes a personality or action. Like if you say someone is Shia Gu, right? I mean, that person is very temperamental, very quick, right? But if you say nyua shia, if you use an adjective preceding the word shia, that it describes emotions. And, and so that it is important to understand because Hmong words are very limited because if you, that's why psychological testing um, or psychometric testing is very difficult because when we do questionnaire to design these psychometric testing, we use multiple angles to measure Validity, validity and reliability, so they may ask you about depression or anxiety from different angle using different word in a very subtle way to see if both can come back to the same. But for Hmong, because we don't have those subtle changes in language, um, the subtlety of how we, rely, we measure reliability and validity are, can, can easily be missed. Because for Hmong, Shia means a lot of things, right? Nsaoshia means a lot of things, right? Lushia means a lot of things. Lushia means rotten liver, right? Means you are kind of chaotic. Uh, you're kind of feeling out of control, right? Nyoshia means you're depressed or you're worried. Nsaoshia means you're chaotic all over. So this is important for uh, Hmong uh, or people who work with Hmong. If you use the Hmong language, it's to understand uh, the, the complexity of these words and what, what kind of connotation they do carry. Uh, so when Hmong come uh, to see me, they don't normally talk so much about psychological term. They tend to talk more physiological. They come because they wait until 
their physical functioning are so impaired. Um, they cannot work if they go to school. The teacher say, this person, I'm referring to you because he or she seems like they're not here. And only then when mom come. And then when mom come and they say, I went to see uh, my doctor, my blood works okay, physiologically I'm okay, but I still don't feel well, but I don't feel sick, you know. And so you do your f uh, assessment and you find out Lots of family problem, lots of uh, financial problem, lots of parenting difficulty, lots of different issues that you say, do you think this caused that? They say, no, I don't, I don't think about that. It's because they're not connecting, they're spiritually thinking about wellness and physiologically, but they're not psychological mindedness. So it's something that we then continue to do psychoeducation. And so when I work with the Hmong client or newly arrived refugee, uh, whether I talk about depression, anxiety, or um, trauma, I have a lot of pictures and a lot of illustration, and it takes time for me for a long time um, to do that. And I would say to them, when you go see the doctor, the doctor give you a pill, and when you uh, have stomachache, you take the pill, right? Yes. So we talk about what's happening when you are triggered uh, by something that reminds you of a very bad experience. Um, do you take my pill? The pill I give to you is to understand that, yes, the brain is recording all this memory, and when something reminds trigger that you are there, and then you, your brain tells your body to activate. And so that's when you should remember my pill. My pill is remember my face. Remember, say, no, I'm America, and I should breathe because I'm not going to die. It's not real. It's just thinking. Even it's a memory that's very painful, I'm safe. And you have to distinct the being safe from painful for them. And they, I say, so if you were scared this past week, since you saw me, how many times did you remember my face? And they would say, I remember your face almost every day. Then I know that it's transitioning from therapy to home. Something's happening. If I asked them, they said, I have no clue what we talked about last week. Then I know that therapy was a horrible process for me. I go back and look at my note, and this is what we did. She, she or he doesn't remember anything. Then I had to say, okay, what do I do differently? And so even very basic step like this, it takes a lot of time. And so because I know that if they cannot get something concrete to help them, in a matter of time, they're not going to come back to see me. And so I, I had to really make sure that it is meaningful for them. It is not... Uh, something that I get paid every time, but they come back and for weeks they don't have anything, then they don't want to come back. So when your clients, they come seeking help from you, um, are they like aware that they're struggling mentally and that's why they're seeking for your help? Or because you talked a lot about, um, they talk a lot about their physiology. Well, when, do, when they do arrive at my place, normally they have seen their medical doctor they have seen their herbalist, they have seen their shaman, they have seen their reverend, uh, if they go to church. They have exhausted a lot of the traditional remedies before they normally get to me. And so they, you can look at, you know, one of the things that we do for a long time is when someone's extremely depressed, they come to your office. It doesn't take the DSM-5 to see that they're depressed. You can see right away they're very depressed. Um, when someone's very scared and you talk too loud or you do something, I had a 
client I just started seeing last week, and I was telling her about trauma, and I keep on saying like this, and I bang the table, and she said, can you stop that? And she starts to cry. Then you know they have PTSD. The simple fact that we ask a lot of questions that they may not think of, the question we ask is very confirming what they're experiencing inside. That is one of the reasons they come back because they know that we know something more. It gives validation that we're professionally trained. We know something that people haven't asked them, that we ask them to say, when you have nightmare, what happened? When you are depressed, what happened? What's happening with your thinking? What's happening with your emotion? What's happening to your body? And I think it validates to them that, oh, this person knows something because they ask me, and they will tell you, you ask me something that people never ask me. No. And so they, they normally know when they get to you, you say, so when I do work with my American client, you start out with the question, what brings you to see me, right? For my Hmong client, it takes many sessions for them to answer the question, why I come see you. You say, why are you coming to see me? They'll say, oh, I'm not well. What does that mean? So it takes a long time, maybe three, four sessions for them to say, that's why I come see you. Because then you, we do a uh, assessment, we present to them and say, this is what I know about you. Is this true? And they're saying, that's why I come to see you, because they need you to help frame that for them. Where American client would come say, what bring you to see me? They'll say, well, I come to see you because of this, because they're familiar with the process. So this is the process when you, I work with Mo, it takes time for me to redefine, help them shape that question. And I think you briefly touched on this, but how do you think that mental health services can be improved for people in color, in particular the Hmong community? I think it needs a lot of work. Um, I think we need a lot of education, and this is why NAMI is wonderful. Uh, I've been partnered with NAMI to do the mental health first aid. I am a big uh, user of NAMI's uh, pamphlet uh, because I think that we need constant education. Uh, as I was talking earlier, in the late 90s and to early 2000s, there were series of murder-suicide in the community by couples. Um, and we were um, shocked and we were not sure what to do. So there were a group of us got together and we believed that we need more education because when you do a workshop and town hall meeting, the people who always come are the people who already have some information. It is the one that who never comes. So, you know, back then, it's only maybe about 16, 17 years ago, but the technology back then now is completely different. So at the time, there was only one Hmong radio station, so we uh, proposed to do three things. We went to the state and got uh, a grant from the Health Disparity uh, Grant, and we launched a magazine and had some um, materials about depressions and suicide, all of that, because the young people don't necessarily listen to the Hmong radio. And at that time, when you had to listen to Hmong radio, you had to buy a special radio. It's not like now, now there's a million internet radios, so they can do that now. Um, and then we also launch a case consultation to train the provider if we're going to go and do these outreach through the radio. If the Hmong people come, we want uh, the provider to be ready. So I, uh, along with another colleague, had a case consultation for professional, and then we went around to uh, different providers to talk to them to do a more training to get them ready to uh, do outreach. And it was very successful. 
um, because we believe that if people have enough information to self-reflect, then they kind of have a gauge about where they are. So what we did was we invited a lot of guests to come talk about what is depression, when do you go get help, what is family therapy, what is couple therapy, what is suicide, uh, what about parenting, uh, what about civil commitment, what does that mean? So we talked in Hmong. And I think it was very successful. Uh, I did that for a little bit. I was I did not host that. I helped to um, manage and supervise the two people who did that. And then maybe in two thousand and ten, I went to work for another agency. And we got a grant, and I asked for a part uh, portion of the grant to continue a radio show like that. So we continue to do that kind of education and. You know, in 2016, 2017, I heard from people as far as North Carolina um, sending, um, because right now if they go to Internet and the Hmong radio station archive their programs online so people can re-listen to this, say, we should have these uh, programs a long time ago because those small communities like us who live in North Carolina or who live in very small um, community like on Alaska, Wisconsin, we don't have access to these things. And so one of the uh, things that I believe that's important is to continue to provide education to the community so they can self-reflect, so they have the knowledge to understand about what they're going through. Because people go who are not trained go have a lot of symptoms, but they cannot piece it together. And when we talk about this, allow them to kind of piece them together, and they can listen to that and not feel shameful or vulnerable in the home. And the sector that we don't have access to are the people who were in the factory. They each have a radio, and they listen to all day, all night, and if we can get the information to them so they can listen without feeling like they're being identified or being singled out, then they, I think they feel safe to, to get help. Um, that's one part. So I think we need to continue to make sure that we have affordable service for people. Uh, those who we see people, there are two types of people come. The people who come to get a lot of help are those that have public assistance insurance. How have you seen your clients uh, practice mental well-being after seeking, seeking mental health? Like, what has been so most successful? Well, I, I think there are some that you can see those who are very, very depressed or actively uh, uh, exhibiting trauma symptoms. You tell them, they tell you. They say before when the storm come and I, hear, I see branch and I hear branch knock on my window, I see the flood in the camp and I go and hide in the blanket over me. Now, I'm not so scared because you told me, America, we have cold. This building had cold and so we're not going to fall. So I'm able to um, um, withstand that. And when my heart starts to pound, I remember your face, I do breathing. I, so it's... I, I'm still scared, but it doesn't stay the whole day now. So they'll tell you. They increase their function. So you look at, this is one of the hardest questions for me as a therapist. How do you measure your outcome? Uh, do we do what the medical model where we reduce symptom? Is it a symptom reduction? What about those that successfully are able to understand how the mind, the body work, and are able to self-manage from those symptoms, but they're not functioning well? If you look at the ACE score, they are not really functioning well. They still do nothing all day long and very impulsively do things. Well, we know people who are very highly traumatized. It's very hard for them to be um, 
uh, focus, be able to do things that they're very impulsive. And, and so their life may not be, they might not be as scared before, they may know how to manage their body a little bit more, but they're still not very functional. Um, they're not able to go to work, they're, they're not able to live a meaningful life. So you have to do a lot of different things, but there are certain things when you talk about growth, it's a little bit harder than when you talk about a three month, four month where you intensely focus on teaching them the skill to manage anxiety so they don't feel like they're gonna die. So I often say to them, the goal is not that you'll never be scared. The goal is that when the scare comes, you know what to do so it doesn't stay the whole day, you know? So people do tell you, and you do see the, the changes. Um, if those that you see for years and you don't see the changes, then you, you I really question what's the motive for coming to therapy, you know? So, so we do see some very dramatic change. We do see that people are able to go back to work. Um, and live a more meaningful life. And they're able to, uh, some people are so scared of uh, even using the oven because they've been in explosion, but they're able to help their children cook and do things. So that's a functional improvement. Yeah, so some are very tangible. Some, they can tell you what's happening. And so they can, they're able to demonstrate back to you. So, What is your personal definition of mental well-being? Well, I think for me, it is that they have a meaningful life. You know, they understand themselves. We all have limitation. Uh, it's for them to feel like they have gained some way of changing and feel like they can function. You know, I can never be like you. You can never be like me. So the standard is not for me to be like you, but the standard is for me to be able to do things that I feel I'm doing to the best of my ability. So mention uh, mental well-being is, is a very complex, very personal definition. You, know? so. you, as a professional, working and hearing all these challenges from people, like how do you maintain your mental well-being? Very hard. Uh, people say that they leave that at the office, but I'm not sure how they do it. So... Um, you know, I work very hard there days. I on Friday, every Friday, I don't go home till ten thirty because it's my most uh, crazy day. So I try to play sport. Um, I try to do things to help me. I try to listen to music. I try to do a lot of things. But you know, it's also hard to uh, not be compassionate because they, these are you don't know them just their story. You begin to understand their children, who they are, and so it is very hard to forget these story. So. I think people might do differently for me sometime, you know, is we have all kinds, we go to training and people tell us all kinds of ways to help ourselves. But for me, I try to uh, go home and play music so loud hmm, that maybe my other part of the family may not be have good mental well-being. <laughs> or I go and golf, or I go do something for me, but... You know, we each carry something inside even though we don't share because these are very sacred stories that people trust you. They don't, they tell, people tell you things they don't tell their wife or their husband. And they, they tell you things that no one in their family has ever known. And so you keep a lot of yourself, you're, just like you tell the client, your brain is recording all of these things. You have all these memories too. So it's very hard. Yeah. How often do therapists, psychologists, or social workers also seek help? I know that a lot of people do, do seek help because remember, we are not just um, a therapist. We're human before we're a therapist. So 
we are not perfect. We have our own issues. So I do think that people, you uh, wouldn't be surprised to see a good number of the helping professional also getting help. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Our last question would be, are there any final words that you would like to add to the conversation about mental health um, and the future of mental health? Well, I would say cross-cultural mental health, whether you're talking about Hmong or you're talking about any other ethnicity, cross-cultural mental health is hard. It's hard, it's tedious, because we have to make sure that the process is meaningful to our client. Um, we are very well trained, or we think we are, but if the training are not translating to something that's meaningful for them, then um, you, and, and we have many factors to um, uh, to face. We have you have to have two sessions, and then you have to get a diagnosis so that you can get paid. You have to have three sessions so that you can get a treatment plan developed. So they, they if they come audit, they they think you have a focus. And then you have a person sitting in front of you with lots of pain, and they tell you a lot of story, a lot of facts, but you have to piece to say, what does this mean? Um, what's, what happened to you? What's the impact? What's the functional impairment right now? And what do I do in a way that is not a talking cure, but is a meaningful process that's real? Uh, it's nice, but it's also real, because sometimes we do therapy, people are so nice, but it's not real. It's not helping at all. It's just so nice. But... It's not effective, so you have to wear many hats. Sometimes you have to make it harder. You challenge people, but sometimes you challenge in a way that's really nice. When you take people to do exposure of a trauma and they before you have five minutes before they got to go, and you feel like they're really active, you don't want them to go home that way, then you extend the time. And that means you extend the transportation waiting for that client, the interpreter you push. So we have so many things to do, but cross-cultural mental health is very hard. Very hard, very tedious. Uh, I think you have to be clinically well-trained. You have to be culturally well-versed. And you have to be humble. You have to, be, you have, to have humility to say that I don't know what they say. Because most of my career, I, I work a lot with the Hmong patient. But in the last five, six years, I've been working with a lot of the new refugees, the Karini, the Karen. And I saw one, um, recently saw a, a woman from Iran. Oh, and so it's, I'm trying to be as humble because my head as a moment is ahead of me all the time. Um, and I have to often remember to say, what does this mean in your culture? Um, what, what does this mean? Uh, and so that I have to say, oops, you know, don't forget, you're thinking like a Hmong person. Um, and so it, it's, it's hard. And so I think we have to be humble and have the humility to say that we don't know much and, and join that process for our client and allow them to also educate us too so but i want to thank you for inviting me for this opportunity to talk yeah thank you thank you so much for sharing true amy and mayi thank you so much for additional resources related to this episode please check the podcast show notes and visit nami minnesota online at namimn.org you've been listening to wellness in color on the mental health in minnesota podcast produced by nami minnesota